0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Daniel Goldman. Nice Jewish name. Daniel is the chairman of the board at Gesher. which literally means bridge and uh we're going to learn exactly how appropriate that name is very shortly but we're here in, the, in a beautiful neighborhood i believe called Roscoe within, within jerusalem and how are you daniel i'm fantastic great to uh, great to be with you ari thank you so much and uh as you can hear from daniel's accent immediately here it is not uh, jerusalemite it is uh something else so where is that accent from
1: and where are you from i am originally from the northeast of england a uh, provincial city called newcastle uh, which has a very warm but small jewish community and wasn't there a netflix show called newcastle oh there have been several uh <laughs> about my locale what's so uh, what's unique about it um well first of all our accent um, you don't hear it today, but if I spoke in the local accent, it would be very difficult for your well, listeners can you give us a quick, like, sin, like, a little... Yes. Snippet. So, uh, we'd say, um, how are you, Ari? How are you today? How are the bands? And have you had your tackle for lunch today? Nice. Is that, is that cockney or is that something else? That is Geordie. Geordie. Which means somebody from Newcastle. Wow. Cool. Um, in fact, uh, your listeners may not be aware that many of the call centers in the United Kingdom are situated in... The Northeast of England, because the accent uh, and the friendliness are more conducive to good customer relations.
0: Interesting. I was going to say, because companies are often committed to having terrible customer service, and they don't want anyone to understand what they're saying. <laughs>
1: um, we're also well known for football, and originally coal, Colster, Newcastle, and obviously all that stuff, uh, the, the coals and industrial stuff has, has gone away, so there's kind of regeneration. But uh, Right. Well, Anyhow, it's a, it's, it's a little bit Rust Belt in your, probably, terminologies. How far is it from, from London? It's an hour's flight. Hour's flight? So maybe a three, four-hour drive? It's a, yeah. Right. Got it. And is it a really its own ecosystem in terms of Judaism as well? So we have uh, the, the, the Northeastern community, of which Newcastle is more or less the only thing left. There were several other provincial what was the other? Kings, uh, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, Darlington, you know, even some, even some, I mean, talking about my community today is probably 500 Jews. Wow. Okay, I haven't lived there for 26 years, but that's my alma mater, if you will. Um, but next to Newcastle, which is a sort of traditional uh, British Jewish community, is a, a separate community called Gateshead. Sure. And uh, Gateshead is an ultra-orthodox, much more self-contained, uh, with its own, uh, you know, shivot academies and, and so forth. Um, so there is a kind of ecosystem between Newcastle and Gateshead, but it is. It's, it's literally crossing a different bridge. Was there any
0: overlap between the two communities? Did they have any interaction with each other?
1: Yeah, so for example, when I was uh, um, growing up in Newcastle, I would go to Gateshead for you know, Jewish classes.
0: Ah, got right. it. And was Newcastle part of this United Synagogue, kind of this umbrella?
1: So United Synagogue is typically the London communities, oh, ah. but it, the style of United Synagogue under the... Auspices, if you will, of the office of the chief rabbi, our, our synagogue was definitely in that sort of mainstream uh, orthodoxy.
0: Got it. So the chief rabbi manages more than just United Synagogue? Correct. I always uh, assumed that United Synagogue was kind of the umbrella. Actually, technically,
1: he is uh, the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. And the Commonwealth. Now, what's in the Commonwealth? Is that like Ireland or something? Canada, South Africa, Canada. Australia. Um, so Rabbi Mervis today is the Chief Rabbi of Canada? No, <laughs> but that is his
0: title. Yeah,
1: it's just the presumption. Uh, He's as much the Chief Rabbi of Canada. Is the Queen is the Queen of Australia?
0: <laughs> there we go. So now, David, how uh, did you leave uh, the UK and the Commonwealth? Uh, Immediately after your maturation into young adulthood, or what was your yeah? Journey? So
1: so basically, I um, completed my studies in the UK, including university. Where? Uh, in London, London University. University. And I made Aliyah straight away after that when I was twenty-three. Why? Um, I'm an old-fashioned Zionist. Um, I grew up, as I say, I, I used to go to Gateshead for for Jewish classes, but I also went to Benen Kiva, the uh, sure. religious Zionist youth group, where that we had a chapter there on Shabbat. So I was kind of Doing all that stuff all together, and in the end, that was that was the natural. I like to say that you know when you go to the uh, football game, or soccer, if you will, uh, you have the people on the pitch and the people in the stands. Yeah. And in order to have a club, you need to have all of those people. But I wanted to be on the pitch, and I felt that uh, you know the the um, the core of the development of the Jewish people is going to be here. So wow. I, I wanted to be in the game. In if the game.
0: Well, wow. did you? Um, was this something that was really? nurtured throughout your childhood, like, yeah. push, make Aliyah, make
1: Aliyah? Uh, not to that extent, but okay. I come from a Zionist family. My, my parents, who were traditional, were always very uh, Israel-affiliated, Israel-oriented, yeah. uh, you know, the equivalent of kind of Jewish Federation and, and, and giving to Israel, UJA, that type of stuff. So my, my parents were always pro that, so it probably wasn't a complete surprise right. to them when me and my brother, we both... I was going to say, if anybody else in the family so we are two and we both made Aliyah, we both live in Um so all the next generation of our gig is over here. That's beautiful. Did your parents ever follow suit? Sadly, my dad only made it uh, to, Haman Uchot, to uh, uh He w- he was buried here. Aye. He always uh, dreamt, actually, of uh, coming here. Hoping we'll, well, my mom next year will make Aliyah. Ah, oh, beautiful! That's yes. wonderful. Well, she lived near near the boys. She will be around the corner from the boys. Amazing! Wonderful! Wonderful! So, what did you do when you came to Israel? You had already studied at that point. So, what was your degree in? So, I have a degree in engineering and uh, business. Uh, Economics. I know the London School of Economics. It's so I was. Uh, <laughs> I I. Sh- I sh- I, I studied in two different colleges in London. One was more engineering-oriented, one was more management-oriented. But if I tell you that I, I was never an engineer and not much of a manager, and in fact, when I, the first thing I did when I came to Israel was to continue studying. And I actually <laughs> trained in special education and music. Wow, very yeah. different. Uh, which I worked in for a number of years. Uh, mostly with sort of post psychiatric teenagers and that sort of stuff. Uh, and group, doing group music therapy. therapy. Yeah, music therapy. How would that function? What would that look like? It, it can be one on one, or it can be uh, in a group, and it's mostly uh, using uh, improvisational techniques in music to allow uh, kids or teenagers to express themselves in nonverbal, uh, in a nonverbal way. If you uh, lo- know or love music, you'll understand that you can touch what we call, it, what we call the music uh, therapy trade the music child you can actually get to the most uh, inner, deeper part of a person's being and often you can strip away all of the um, occasionally the things which uh, you know, they create tough envelopes like an onion, if you can peel away and peel away, you can get into the you know, the deepest feelings of a person, beyond language and music is one of the most powerful uh things to do that and that's what i used to do with the uh with my clients or or or, or pupils or whatever
0: would th- would they
1: like write lyrics or it was or it was really just a playing it depends on level of functioning yeah you could you you, you I mean i i worked in a one stage i worked in a psychiatric hospital with a teenager who probably were not for the fact that he was psychiatric could have been a professional concert pianist wow but he couldn't get out of bed in the morning because of his uh, psychosis. Wow. So, and he actually, I had to do an audition with him in order for him to, uh, uh, you know, quote unquote, an audition, in order for him to accept that you were worthy of... I was worthy of working with him. Wow. Now, he was a much better musician right. than I was. So we used to do duets on the piano. That would be, uh, and getting him to focus actually on playing that, setting time aside, doing the practice, actually, you know, fixing on... I'm actually going to get out of bed, clean my teeth, and play the piano. That was part of his, you know, mm-hmm. therapy. So it's not just that
0: the music itself was a, a form of expression, but it was actually a form of of an activity of structure. Yeah, it's
1: almost behavioral. In, yeah. uh, so you have it's it's a different you know, and you have kids who are very very low functioning, that if you can get them to you know hit a Glock in time, then you know, you're you're able to do that. One other thing which I think uh, is a potential segue for us later is. If you think about uh, a a group of 10 psychiatric teenagers if they can listen to one another Mm. playing and even play together they can learn some social behavior that the psychiatric uh, illness has taken away from them yeah and it's a way for them to okay I'm listening to him he's listening to me we're gonna play together It's a very, uh, it's a kind of proxy for social interaction. Interesting. Uh, And that sort of, I'm going to make space for somebody else now to make music or speak, whatever, is something which has definitely stayed with me into the work of uh, the building that we're in currently. Amazing. What's your particular uh, instrument of choice? I I play the piano, I play the violin, I sing. Uh, I used to sing in choirs and stuff like that. I don't do it enough. I was going to say, do you get to
0: do any of that stuff today? Uh, not enough. Dabble.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's still wow. fun for me. When I need the quiet moment, I still go to the piano.
0: Wow. I mean, I just uh, I just took up piano actually about two years ago myself. Oh, wonderful. Uh, started taking lessons with a, a lady in my neighborhood. and. Uh, wonderful. Yeah, my wife as well. So it's been a... Wow, wonderful. I don't want to say midlife... Uh, Renaissance in that regard, but it's been a uh, you know, in Hebrew we call it a pinuk. Pinuk, it's a pinuk. There you go. Spoil yourself. Why it's not? been fabulous, a uh, wonderful album. Terrific. We all need it. So, you were working in music therapy for quite a while, yeah,
1: and but you're no longer. So, that's so right. I made the changed? switch uh, 20 plus years ago into business. Want to start making some money? <laughs> I realized that, uh, you know, being a music therapist is good for volunteering. So basically I, I, I kind of reverted a little bit back to uh, the things I'd done, I'd learned previously. I uh, joined the bank, I, I worked in a venture capital fund, oh, wow. <laughs> and then about 20 years ago I founded my own firm. And I've been running with two partners a, a business firm, you know, investments, advice, and so forth for 20 plus. Years. So it's an investment advisory, or it's, or it's a v- it's family, family office. It's it's merged into a, it's developed into a multi-family office. So we advise. You're managing a few families. We we advise multiple families who are in multiple um, regimes. So they're in different places around the world. They have complicated uh, life stories. Um, the more complicated, the better for us. <laughs> um, and actually a lot of the skills and experience about listening to people's life yeah and understanding what that means for how to help them to get it organized you know, stuff that i you know i wouldn't want to say that my clients are special needs but they are special people and uh with great wealth often comes uh you know responsibility and complication yeah and not everybody is uh you know Often when you, it's your situation, you need somebody else, like uh, Chavuta, yeah. you know, a, a, a partner, to, to figure it out. And that's what we're there. So for. when you're talking about
0: complicated situations, you're saying, because well, there's different family Siblings members. Siblings and conflict. family
1: business and conflict. And, you know, even where there's no conflict, there is how do I transfer wealth and values to the next generation? At what age should I give access and education and knowledge to my kids, who may be a second or third generation for the right. wealth? Um, and how do I equip them for a useful life, even if they don't have to go out to work?
0: Right. Trust
1: fund uh, kind of... Exactly. Second and ge- third generation. And, you know, most of the uh, people that we know and most of the people in the world have to get out of bed in the morning to put, you know, bread on the table and milk in the fridge. Um, if you don't have that requirement, you need something else. Right. right? It, doesn't it can be business, but it doesn't have to be business. It can be, can be philanthropy. It can right. be making music. It can be volunteering in Africa. It can be... But you, you need something to get that passion right. to get me out of bed in the morning.
0: It's interesting that you play that role because you know, I don't think people imagine a, an, an investment advisor as necessarily playing that kind of a role.
1: In, in our office, I'm, uh, my title is the CSO. I'm the chief schmooze officer. <laughs> How do you identify your source clients? Uh, word of mouth. All oh, word of mouth. Totally. We do not advertise. We don't market. We just... Uh, but do you actively take on new
0: clients or are you really yeah. just managing a couple we, of families?
1: We 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 can probably take on a couple of new clients a year.
0: Ah, so it's a it's a it's a basket of families. It's not just correct. one it's major bad. family. That's correct. And then are you primarily investing for them in Israel or No, it's totally global. Totally. Global. All the markets and any
1: asset class, any any market.
0: And you work with larger banks and things like that? Yeah, we, in,
1: in the parlance we work on a completely independent open platform uh, system, so we don't manage directly a cent, uh, we allocate to third-party managers. Uh, so you might give so like like an, an allocation to
0: Goldman or allocation to... Yeah, we're typically whatever. looking
1: for best of breed in a particular asset class. So we want the best equity manager uh, you know, for North America or emerging markets or Europe, and we want the best debt, and we want the best in real estate. So we're actually spending, we're typically going around the major institutions to the significant but much smaller guys whose speciality is we do, you know, multi-res in the uh, you know tri-state area. Right, right. Um, or private equity in Japan or debt in Europe or whatever. Right. So you'll invest in smaller groups if they're... Yes. Yes, always, almost always, actually. So
0: not necessarily the large banks and. and There are things.
1: There are things that they do better. Right, and access that they have sometimes. And sometimes it's access. Although, post the financial crisis, access is less of an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, I wouldn't say modesty, but they've understood that even the big funds can't just uh, shut themselves away.
0: Interesting, yeah. interesting. So, what's that experience been like working in this in this space in Israel? And are your partners American, Israeli,
1: British? I have British? A, um, a former Australian as a partner, and a former Georgian. Georgian, as yeah. in Atlanta, Georgia. I was going to say, like, yeah, yeah, no, that, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the former communist. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in the office we have British accents and Aussie accents and American accents and uh, so forth and uh probably then not surprisingly 90 percent of our clients are anglo-saxon in some shape or form we we sort of measure it by passports so we have families with two passports one passport three passports uh israel uk israel us if they ever get
0: arrested maybe no passport (laughs) yeah
1: exactly (laughs) unfortunately so (laughs) probably we haven't had to bring in the crisis management team (laughs) which i imagine would be you Well, again, if there are things that we feel we can take care of, we do it ourselves, right. and wherever we feel that there's an expert required, right. our, our job is to project manage in the best of breed in lawyers and, and, and family experts and, you know, whatever. So we work alongside people with expertise in particular areas because our job is to bring best of breed always right. to, our, to our clients, and they need to be confident that we have sourced for them sure. not just the best in investment, but the best in lawyer and the best in tax and the best right. in... Um, how does how does an office like yours earn profit is it is it commission based or it's the, fixed fee Fixed fees and that's it So we agree when we begin what the scope of the work looks like right um, what the assets are how many family members how many different uh, geographic centers you know we we have we have this kind of a, a basket of services right. you know I wouldn't say it's a, a completely scientific uh, pricing but it's a fixed fee and then you know you can call me 20 times a day or once every three weeks and i'm not looking at the uh i'm not looking at the clock i'm not a i'm not a sort of pwc or a law firm where you're not billing and you're not no no you're also not working on commission and 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 part of the culture that i try and make sure that all of my colleagues have is when you are servicing a client please never think how much we're charging him treat every single client uh without concern to whether they're but we have clients, obviously, that are more profitable, less profitable, depending on how many times they call us a day, right? Um, so really, what we're trying to achieve is a um, an atmosphere or a, or a style of service, so that every one of our clients thinks we are their single family office. So that's that's kind of the ethos that we're, in. and it's that's a challenge. When you got like somebody, yeah, yeah. So we spend a lot of time thinking about that, and then acting according. Having clothing. enough personnel to correct to deliver on that. Absolutely. Now, although you said you you invest worldwide. I
0: imagine that this particular position has given you uh, an interesting perch from which to
1: observe the burgeoning Israeli yeah. economy, and well, we and, and and for a number of years we were very active directly in 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 sort of VC and private equity VC, investing. In so, Israel. what
0: what's been your um, analysis of what's going on in the Israeli
1: scene? So, I think at, 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 you know at, at the macro level, um, Israel continues to be an unbelievable, uh, you know, vibrant. Uh, economy. We have um, we have this slight uh, bifurcation where you have a very high added value part of the economy, which is the sort of tech and high tech uh, sector, where salaries and 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 the ability to generate personal wealth is is meaningful. So you can go in as a as a regular employee and end up with. Uh, may not be, you may not be a, a billionaire, but you can generate proper, meaningful stock options, uh, are good and, guy, stock yeah. options and so forth, and, and in salary. But that represents probably ten, twelve percent of the total economy. Right. So it drives a significant amount of the value you add. But ninety percent of the economy is in old economy. Yeah. And relatively speaking, if you do all the measurements by OECD and so forth, that old economy is actually lagging. Right what old economy looks like in other places interesting even even when you compare apples to apples it was old Compare apples to apples interesting and we have some you know because actually the domestic market is relatively small um, the ability to generate productivity in those parts of the economy is relatively poor so there's a significant wage stagnation around those areas Um, and there's skill shortages in in uh, some of the old economy uh, areas and then overlay onto that we have two uh let's call them special populations who are vastly underemployed right uh, both in terms of the quantity of that employment and the quality of that employment right. and those are two big sort of economic slash social challenges that that we need to uh right. and and they, they they need to be in the bell curve they need to be they need to be in high tech, but they need to be elsewhere as well. Mm. Um, and and for, for your listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, we've got the the Haredi or orthodox population, which you know uh, we deal with a lot in in this building. And the second one is the um, Arab population, which is typically the uh, Arab women, okay, who are who are vastly underemployed. And um, certainly one of the challenges for the Israeli economy is to get that integration uh, piece. Uh, going um, and it's about skills and it's also about acculturation, sort of cultural gaps. Right, uh,
0: right. I think it was somebody told me recently that I, th- I think it's by 2028, 40% of first graders will be from ultra Orthodox homes, which has, you
1: know, it's a demographic, yeah, uh, massive broadcast. impact, you know, yes. future impact for the uh, yes, particularly you know, if they continue to study. Correct, I mean, that, that, that has to
0: be cracked in the next 20 years. Or exactly. the economy is going to be in. Yeah, really it's, it,
1: and it, 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 it's a generational question. Yeah. It's not what's happening tomorrow morning. It's a generational question. But things which don't, um, things which are not initiated soon, there won't be time it's to. Ripple uh,
0: effects. Exactly.
1: So you mentioned we're sitting here in this building, which is called Gesher again, which yeah. means bridge.
0: Um, and the truth is, I know very little about it other than um, it's building some kind of bridges between these disparate populations within Israel. That's right. And. I think many people are aware that there are some Fissures which within Israeli society, mm-hmm. um, and uh, not it's you know some comes can be very uh, factionalized. So what exactly is Gesher? How did you come to the picture and tell us a little bit about this this place? So
1: the, I think the the um, in my personal history, the turning point for me in terms of how I look at Israeli society was uh, 1995 when the assassination. Assassination of, of Rab- 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 yeah. Rab- And you here already at that point? Yeah, I was here already three years. Oh wow. good. Okay. Um, and my kind of wake up moment was that uh if if you consider this to be the kind of third third jewish commonwealth jewish sovereignty in in the land of israel etc um the thing which threatens that is not our relations with our neighbors or the palestinians not that that is not important of course it's important Sure. Um, but actually what what potentially undermines uh, the integrity of, of Israel as a home for the Jewish people is actually the ability for the Jews to get on yeah. um, and to understand what that ethos looks like after 2000 years of not having that sovereignty um, and if one Jewish Israeli can take a gun and shoot a, a, the personification of that sovereignty, the Prime Minister then we have a serious problem Right. Um, and it's not about the person who took the gun nor is it about the person who was assassinated. It's about what does that mean at a deeper level for Israeli society and for Jewish society within Israeli society. So that was kind of a aha for me. And in a sense, the activities that Gesher is trying to promote is really totally focused on that uh, question. And and as a, as a sort of title, what I'd like to suggest is that um, I, I think it's also a very Jewish idea that the differences and the variety, sometimes the the stark differences in approach or philosophy, uh, religious approach, economic, social approach, instead of that being on the side of the uh, on the debt side of the uh, balance sheet, should be on the equity side of the balance sheet, i.e. we should turn that to being a, uh, an asset for the Jewish people, i.e. that variety, that debate, the harshness of difference of opinion is something that which should be a source of vibrancy and not a source for disaster and that's a tricky thing to achieve and in, in fact I think it's difficult for people to visualize and the metaphor that I try to give is like um, and it, you know goes back to music unity is a, a synonym for harmony harmony in music is created when you have a set of different instruments who uh, come together each playing a different line of music and actually through a great deal of hard work and practice eventually they can play Beethoven's Ninth or whatever and one of the secrets to the success of an orchestra is that when the violinist walks into the practice hall he's the best violinist he knows how to be. He spent already a lot of time figuring out what type of violinist he wants to be which type of violin he is going to play, who was his teacher and he's loyal to the instrument and to the, to the tradition of Stradivarius or whoever, Paganini and the same is true for the flautist and the same is true for the double bass and the cello and the guy playing the triangle and, and so on and so forth and then when he sits at his desk to be the violinist what he then needs to do is to open his mind to say, oh, hang on a minute, I see around me other violinists and cellists and trombonists and so forth, and in order for us to make this harmony, I also have to make space for this other music to exist. And then once I've listened carefully, once I've, you know, let's once I've sort of drawn back myself a little bit, and I hear this other music, it doesn't make me any less of a violinist, But together, it makes something that apart we can't possibly ever achieve. That's the type of ethos that I'm trying to drive as the driving force to Gesher. And that has a huge amount of uh, application when you talk about the public space in Israel. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about how are we going to, on the one hand, have a Jewish atmosphere, but in a way that everybody can plug into that. So take Shabbat, for example. Can we have Shabbat, which is, for some people, halachic? Okay, it's going to be by the letter of the law, according to all the most stringent traditions. But for some people, it's going to be cultural, which means that they'll need public transport on Shabbat, because for them, Shabbat means I'm going to have a meal with my mother or grandmother or parents, and they live in a different city, and I have to get to them. Right. So, is there a way for us to... You know have a win-win on those things rather than a win-lose um, that's the music I'm trying to uh, generate the way that we do that is that we work with lots of varied populations in lots of different environments so we work in high schools uh, bringing religious and secular high schools together we work in the army so all of the uh, our West Point uh, what we call here bad all of our army uh, officers, officers. Trainees, uh, they go through a two-day Gesher seminar really? as part of their officer training. Wow. Um, which for them is, if you think about, you're an officer in the Israeli army, you're going out to risk your life. So, number one, who for? And number two, which are the who are the soldiers that you are taking out with you? And remember that if you've got a, a battalion of uh, infantry soldiers, they may be Jewish, they may be... Arab, they may be Bedouin, they may be Druze, they may be religious, they may be secular. Today, they may even be Haredi ultra-orthodox. How can I get those guys in a sort of microcosm of what we're talking about? And risking your life is a kind of pinnacle of putting it out there. And if you want that to happen, you have to have people covering each other, right? You gotta, I gotta have your back. You gotta have mine. I know. I need not to worry about the fact that when I'm covering you, literally, you're gonna cover me, right? So part of what we do is that type of uh, seminar, and a lot of what we are discussing there is, uh, if we talk about, if we sort of mention the Shabbat as something which is halachic or or cultural. So in in a sort of slightly parallel, we'd say we look and analyze for people what is the element of their Israeli identity, what is their elements of their Jewish identity, which of those things are in tandem or synergistic, which of them can be sometimes in conflict. Um, sometimes we're confused which sits where. Yeah, I think it's a tricky question for Israelis. They've had many conversations it's, with it's, us about it's, this. And, and, and in, in normal everyday life over breakfast, we're not talking about it. Right. And therefore, you know, like everything else, once you put the whiteboard up and you have a group of 15 guys coming from different parts of Israeli society and you put it on the table, lots of interesting things begin to happen. Our expertise is, is to create a space where it can be done without getting into people's throats, right, or at, right. at people's throats, allowing that conversation, which can touch on exceedingly sensitive issues like why didn't you, why didn't your friends come to go to the army, right? If right. I'm sitting opposite a ultra-orthodox Jew, where the vast majority do not serve in the army, the first thing that will come up as a secular sure. uh, Israeli or a non-Haredi Israeli as is, well, I don't even deserve to be at the table, okay? And so to, to be able to uh, have a more constructive conversation, even about the most difficult um, issues—religion and state, the army, um, how things are done here—that is our expertise. Um, when was when was Gesher actually founded, and, and by whom? And it was founded in the early '70s. Oh well. Wow. By Oler from uh, the Bronx. Interesting. Uh, Danny Tropper, Rabbi Dr. Danny Tropper, uh, YU graduate, who uh, made Aliyah in the late '60s. Wow. And saw so the tensions between religious and secular. I think it's completely non. Uh, it, it is not an accident that somebody came from a diaspora community right where the idea of communities living side by side and finding the places to to, to cooperate together, even if right. generations, things, generations, generations, generations that that, yeah. boards of rabbis, right. all this type of stuff. That kind of genetic experience. Yeah undoubtedly brought him, and as a, an outsider, looking in a little bit to the situation of Israeli society, I think that there's no surprise to me that, that a guy uh, from overseas did that. It's probably not a surprise that I'm from the UK and I'm the chairman. So he was the founder, he ran it for, you know, about 30 something uh, years. Oh. And we have, I've been chairman for about seven years, been involved for nearly 20 years. Did you find it early when you came here? So I joined the board of Share in 2000. Um, So
0: pretty early on into your tenure in Israel.
1: Yes. And it sounded like you were already thinking about these issues and kind of, you know. Absolutely. It fit to my way of thinking uh, very much. And it's not directly associated with any segment or sector of Israeli society. Okay, and we, we take you around here. It's a little bit holiday time. But if I took you around, the staff and our moderators, um, we have around 25 staff, and we have about 150 200 freelance moderators that wow. go through a Gesha training. It's an extremely sought-after position. We probably recruit 20 or 30 on an annual basis, and we have a thousand applicants. Wow! Um, and you'll see that it's it, it's beitar to merits, charedi to secular, uh, you know, Ashkenazi to north and south, and that is of course we must have that. That is, we must be that orchestra if we're going to. Uh, sell that orchestra you know we got to do it um, and our board of course is also diverse um, it's Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and male and female and Haredi and secular and uh, army and business and it's, it's all those things so we definitely are seeking to create that model and then share that model with others today our kind of mission statement is how to create shared living as within israeli society okay we know that some of the flashpoints are actually down in the field you know fighting over what does the street look like on shabbat who is going to determine what modesty is going to be applied in a neighborhood how much autonomy do i give to a neighborhood that is secular and how much autonomy do i give to a neighborhood which is ultra-orthodox and what happens when those two neighbors are side by side how do we resolve those almost inevitable uh, conflicts. Maybe one other sort of piece of background on the infrastructure of Israeli society, which which you listeners I think will be helpful is, for historic and political reasons our education system is divided up into uh, subsectors of society. Um, so we have what's called the Mamlachti, the state system which is typically for the um, secular community. We have what's called Mamlachti Dati, which is for the religious Zionist community, which probably in the US is more modern orthodox, if you will. We have Chinuch Hatzmai, which is actually a brand name, but let's call it the Haredi sector, which is pretty much exclusively Haredi. And then we have the Arab sector who has their own education system. And without getting into either the history or the good or the bad of why that is in place, what that means is that, that you can grow up here from kindergarten to 18 and possibly beyond and have never experienced any meaningful meeting, meeting of minds, dialogue, debate, argument with somebody from one of the other sectors of society. And in those formative years, where you're developing your, not just your personality from an individual perspective, but your kind of societal personality, how I reflect on diversity, the other uh, within society, you're not having exposure to what that other looks like and the way I try and sort of explain it is if you're wearing a white shirt on the on a white background it's very hard to differentiate yourself from the uh, arena if you're wearing a white shirt on a black background you know exactly who you are right you can like it dislike it change it but you can't really do anything about it if you're white on white or black on black or pink on pink doesn't matter and so actually the bringing together people from different identities and backgrounds. Not only does it allow me to know what Ari's identity looks like, but actually it, it allows me to uh, fine tune, uh, get in touch with, sometimes rework or redesign, right. not in a, not that I'm going to throw it out, but ah, actually I've seen what Ari has to offer and actually I, I like what I have. If you never saw anything else, you have nothing to benchmark against. Right. And what the alternative, of course, is I can demonize Ari and it doesn't matter whether Ari is secular or ultra-orthodox or Arab or Bedouin or Druze or whatever, but the easiest thing for me to say, all the rubbish is over there and all the good is over here. This is a non-sophisticated way of uh, building a, a societal personality. So we're kind of, for historical reasons, we're starting at a deficit, right? We're really starting at a deficit. Which is why our, uh, you know, we, we our encouragement to, to sort of government and philanthropy is the sooner we can get started on this kind of meeting and the, the, the more regular we can have those uh, meetings, whether it's through the media or in schools or whatever it is, the, the more likelihood, not that I want Ari to change who he is, but for him to appreciate that there are, you know, if he's the violin, I'm the double bass. Right. Um, so, so how, how
0: are some of the, what are some of the specific programs that have been implemented? And are most of these programs, at this point, kind of legacy programs that have been in place for years? Terrific or question. is there constant evolution with the changing society? So the,
1: the sort of legacy, the, the, the core of what we've done forever and ever is the high schools.
0: Okay. Um, and
1: how does that function? So, that functions in two different ways. Um, at a kind of high level, it's where we can get the agreement of a secular and a religious school to have a joint seminar about Israeli and Jewish identity St- straight to the core. there's not just getting together for it's not it's a, a speaker about whatever no. but, but actually no no, about no, no. absolutely and our, and our skill is within a day or two days quickly to bring people to that capability all right that's what we do and, and we've done that for many, many years we've added in that sort of age group um, over the last couple of years and we'll probably do more and more of it is to work with the uh, youth movements uh, et cetera, et cetera, the religious and secular. For two reasons. One is in an informal educational environment, your ability to have moderated type sessions is much greater. fits in right. very easily with the type of, uh, again, you know, where, where you're coming from, the NCS, NCSYs or, or USY type of... Uh, informal education. Uh, informal yeah. education. And B... I don't know if this is true for, for the community over in, in the States, it tends to be that those who have been active in youth movements will probably be more likely in a higher proportion to be in leadership. Right. Because these are your most passionate, most socially aware and active people. So part of what we've tried to do over the last sort of decade or so is say, well, we have a limited resource. Let's go after those who are going to be the influencers. Let's influence the influencers. Sure. And whereas there are thousands of schools and tens of thousands of pupils, there are five youth movements that cover 750,000 kids, if I can get in the room the heads of those movements and then get genetically plugged into how they train their leadership, my exposure to is, is, if you think market share, I'm not going to be in 10% market share, I can get to 80% market share. And has that been happening? Are the movements receptive? Very much so. Yeah, it, 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 that itself was a significant process because the movements are also in silos. Sure, and they have real ideological differences. I mean, yeah. they, they reflect very much the same type of ideology. Yeah, these are arbitrary distinctions. No, no. These are ideolog This is not social groups. These are ideological movements with real history and they're a, a, a real uh, portfolio of ideas and, and whether it's ideas on politics, economics, Jews and Arabs, Palestinians, da 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 religion and states, uh, universal ideas versus particular ideas. So how are you able to influence them or, or uh, convince them so to speak? So the first stage that with that, which was a really fascinating uh, process, we took the leaders away. We brought them to the UK Jewish community as a group? As a group. Wow. I'm, I'm amazed you could get them all at once. <laughs> so the, the, the good news is that, that within the education ministry, there's what's called the, the, the youth group council. Ah, okay. So there's an existing, a so pre-existing sort of structure there. Which doesn't do that much. <laughs> but, but at least they, they, they have scheduled meetings or something. Exactly. <laughs> and they had, for reasons which are not that interesting, they, they opened an opportunity for us to, to take them to the UK to spend a very intensive week with all sections of the Jewish community. How does student life look? How does communal life look? What does lay leadership look like? What does spiritual leadership look like? Um, how do they interact with government? Da-da-da-da, everything. They saw a really high level, very intense, what does community look like? And as opposed to the US, which is five million Jews and an exceedingly disparate sort of pockets of leadership, actually in the UK you can do this um, it's a much more coherent community in the sense of you can do it in a, in a few days and one of the things which and, and we, we, we now have an entire department called the sort of Leadership Institute which is looking at programming which is doing programming for Israeli leaders is the trick which we discovered by taking the guys to a diaspora community is they sell, and these are great guys sure these are really great obviously guys obviously all very accomplished and they really and, and Jewish patriots every single one of them with each one with their own they hadn't really in their hearts understood emotionally that they're not just part of Israeli society but they're part of the Jewish people and what does that mean? that means that a realization of being Part of something which is so much bigger than what you are, or even your group is, or your community is. It leaves a, a huge amount of space to aspire, to be great. And not just great from an Israeli society perspective, but there's a whole other thing going on here. And the history of the Jewish people is a great deal more rich, actually, than the history of Israel. I mean, right. I love the history of Israel. It's fantastic. Right. It's a lot shorter. It's a flash. <laughs> right. It's a flash. God willing, it will continue, but it's a flash. You know, I, I um, parentheses. I took a couple of my boys on a kind of heritage sure. tour last week up to the northeast of England. Okay. And outside of Newcastle, where we grew up, there's a, a small town called Annick. And in Annick, there is a very old castle. Which by old the way, castle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a little actually younger than the castle in Newcastle, but that's another story for another <laughs> day. In Anik Castle... Already, exactly. In, in Anik Castle they filmed Harry Potter. Ah. The outdoor, sure. some of the outdoor stuff. But what was interesting, we did a tour of the state rooms, because actually the Duke of Northumberland still lives in Anik Castle. And he's lived there for 700 years. And the, the title, the Duke of Northumberland, is a thousand years old, okay? And it was William of Percy who came with Norman, with, with the Norman Conqueror in 1066, oh. and it suddenly dawns. My kids, the kids I took was 15 and 13. But the kind of well, wait a minute. Israel is kind of is it modern Israel or ancient Israel? Okay, and Israeli Zionist history is 120, 130 years old. Jewish history is 5,000 years old but but the experience of being israeli is a modern experience not an ancient experience and suddenly britain which is much less old than the jewish people in in the perception of my boys wait a minute this castle has been here for 700 years and and it sort of it opens your mind to thinking in the sort of what timeline where are we on on this timeline what is the perspective about my what is my responsibility what is my position so what all that parentheses is to to explain that when our leaders come back to israel their understanding of what it means to be a leader of israeli society has changed because of their understanding that they are that israeli society itself physically fits inside a wider jewish people but historically sits in something which has such a rich and and you know almost too rich, too overburdening sometimes, but a a hugely interesting, you know, it it opens your mind to questions you wouldn't otherwise think. That was the starting point for uh, our work with the youth movements, and it's been our catalyst to work with, since about five years ago, about 300 Israeli leaders from uh, business, uh, the world of not-for-profits, government and sort of quasi-government, local government, and the media, so in every group, uh, we try and have people from all of those sectors, and men and women, and secular, religious, and ultra-orthodox, and so that each one is a kind of microcosm. And then we <coughs> we have a program of meetings that each meeting is looking at a an issue within Israeli society.
0: So you're taking the same issues, and
1: but at a very much them, higher level,
0: and discussing them in different. Context, but it's always the same issues and you yes. really, you know, it's always getting back to okay What's the relationship between the religion and state? And yes have these media people discuss and debated and yes. what? What typically emerges from such an encounter? So this there's, there's,
1: there's probably must be very passionate in the three, le, three level Yeah, yeah totally um, I'm, and, and again, this is this is a, an, a unique opportunity for these leaders in a I suppose over, over your side of the pond You'd call it a safe space Uh, But a place where you can really throw tough things onto the table, and everybody survives. Okay, and you get bigger by that. Uh, Surviving a difficult argument makes you a better person at the end of it. Sure. All right. Avoiding that bigger argument makes you a smaller person. All right. So safe place where nothing gets discussed. Bad. Safe place where you can really touch the difficult issues is good. We see three things happening um, and we, we, we measure this reasonably carefully with our leaders. Number one, we see across the board attitudinal change, Okay, how I relate to my ideological the other, other? Um, how I relate to myself and often how I relate to my position within society and what that responsibility means. So That's pretty much 100%. Then we have a second level which is, okay, um, Ari is a fellow of our leadership program, when you call me I am available. So if you want me for a panel or another group or write an article, and that's probably 70-80%. And then we have the gold standard uh, which is, okay, I am a campus rabbi or I run a, I have a, a hugely successful radio show. And we have people who have the most important radio shows or tv or newspaper columns in the country right okay so uh the guy who has the eight to ten o'clock in the morning slot on the most important radio station in the country is one of our fellows uh the guy who runs the news today on the radio is a fellow um and we have from our and we have you know Agents everywhere, <laughs> and the highest level is <laughs> in my direct sphere of influence. What of the experience that I have had, am I going to do differently now going forward? And I'll give you a couple of examples. Yeah. One of our alumni is the head of uh, culture and education in Rishon LeZion, uh, medium-sized, decently large but medium-sized city in Israel, and she's she's a great uh, sort of local government professional and she rewrote her entire business plan for how she delivers culture and education to the 27,000 pupils students school age kids in Rishon well so that today she has a unified set of programming that all of the kids do together so instead of this is for the religious that's kids. Cool, and that's this cool, is for and the secular kids. <laughs> so she has for example a concert, an educational concert which is a uh, Andalusian orchestra doing piyut. Uh, I don't know how, how you sort of uh, translate piyut like uh, you know um, ritual uh, poetry. Poetry? Exactly, yeah. religious sacred poetry and in the audience is religious and secular kids. Okay? I didn't spend a cent on that. I spent a couple of cents on her. And she is now. That's that's not a one-time hit. That's an every-year hit. Right. Uh, that's massive impact for us. Uh, I'll give you another example. Uh, Chico Menashe, very well-known radio news broadcaster, really wonderful human being. After having been on our program on the Holocaust Day, which, as you know, is a very extremely intense day here, and. Is another point of potential conflict. How to remember the Holocaust? Yes. And do ultra-Orthodox people stand in the siren or do they not stand? And is saying to heal him the same as standing for a siren? And is standing in a siren really a Jewish thing? So uh, there's a lot of tension around that. And he had the sort of eight to ten slot, the most important slot, and at ten o'clock is the siren. So everybody's listening to the radio. At five to ten, at ten to ten, he chose to spotlight the Ginzach, the Charedi Holocaust Museum, which is really an archive in Benybrak, which is nobody knows about, right. which is an unbelievable institution, and talked. He brought onto the show some of the people that he'd met through the course from the Charedi community to talk about every day in the Charedi community is Holocaust day. Oh. In some way if you go to the Great Ponovich Yeshiva sure. in Connecticut and you see the pasuk the the verse from the Tanakh it's a Holocaust memorial. I I, I ran a meeting of Yeshatid okay Pids, sure. uh, anti-Charedi right. uh, party. Quote-unquote. So, so with
0: Dov Levin in it, <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Uh,
1: uh, your, your neighbor, friend, presumably. My neighbor and good friend. Um, and some Haredi activists. And we got Yeshatid activists, and, and, and we had a series of meetings, each one talking about the toughest issues. And we did one on Holocaust Day. On Holocaust Day. Wow. Oh. And, of course, it started by everybody attacking the Haredim in the room. The, how come you don't stand in the siren? Blah, blah, blah. And one of the guys said, Listen out of respect, I stand in the street. If I'm at home, I don't. And there was a whole debate around that. And then the assumption of the secular people in the room was, you don't really care about the Holocaust. Hmm. And this guy, this young guy, he was 19 years old and I really? he's living in Panovich or whatever. He's he's a said, a young, he was he, a young guy. Yeah, these were young activists. Uh, he said, look, I don't think you understand. I have too much Holocaust memorial. I feel every day when I walk into the Beth Midrash, into the study hall a that it's Holocaust Memorial Day. Right, that he's redeeming the European experience in Every day, the is
0: on me. I mean, that's how these yeshivas, great yeshivas were built, in many kids. That's what they were built Panovich for. Arrived. That's what they were built these were for. survivors who came to say,
1: we have to rebuild Europe. Of course. <laughs> you know, so. Of course. Yeah. And you, you, you sort of have that, you see in the eyes of the, the interlocutor of this young Haredi guy who's not, he's not apologizing for himself, right, right. He, but he is getting an opportunity to explain for the first time to some secular people without it being us versus them. Right. And I'm not saying that they walked out and like, I don't mind if you stand or don't stand in the siren. That's going to continue to bother everybody. Right. But they had an, a first realization that I'm the violin. You're the flute, he's the trombone, right. but actually we're in some way working on the same score, and that's the that is the transition that we uh, we see it we see it every day, um, and and often the uh, fellows actually work together on projects afterwards. So we have what sounds stupid, right? Almost banal, but media people who came on the course are now inviting one another to their shows, columns newspapers etc it's cross pollination and yeah it's like oh hey how did I not think of that before yeah. well if you don't chat we don't take down the demonization rules right. Right. it's not going to happen yeah. uh, so there's this kind of it sort of generates a variety it generates an understanding that actually multi-voice okay multi-vocal is something which creates good music yeah and everybody loves good music yeah. Every, it doesn't matter if you like Led Zeppelin or Mozart. Everybody like, everybody knows when they've heard really good music, All right. It's just, it's transcendental, you know, in those moments when you hear a Bach, right? And you're like, just for a moment, yeah. you're in touch with the divine, right? Just last night I was walking around, I was, my wife and I were walking
0: down Java Street and from the distance we heard this amazing voice. And we turned it was a Haredi singer-guitarist with presumably his wife and a huge headscarf playing an exquisite violin. Wow! And the two of them were on the street corner and it was just, you know, it was not your average street performer. They were magnificent. They were clearly they something were special. And we just, and everyone, it just stopped and everyone stopped and people just gathering around. It was amazing. You tell me that wasn't a transcendental yeah, moment. Yeah, it was. It surely was. You, what's, yeah, if any, do you get pushback ever from some of these communities saying, "Oh, you, you know, know
1: so so how do you what's the pushback and how do you deal okay. with it? so so um, I, it, it, I, I, we don't have the chance to be too nuanced here, right? so i'll I'll do it in broad brush strokes. The Haredi community has been brought up on an ideal of separation, right, and that outsiders are there to change us. Right. And not in a good way so they are burdened by the history of emancipation and the history of yep. secularization sure. and the 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 threat of modern society and the lack of morals in liberal progressive Western dida 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 yep so any individual or organization that approaches the Haredi community with anything which is anything other than functional right is immediately a concern, right? So it has to be very utilitarian. So, so we have to, we have to, like, like a, like a good company would do. We have to market the product in a way yeah. that the uh, community wants it, and I mean that in an authentic, sure, fashion. They need to believe I'm not coming to missionize, okay? And that is true in almost the mirror right. reverse for the secular yeah, community. Be coerced and brainwashed and who, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there's a huge um, debate, dialogue, quite vociferous about what's called here hadata or kfiyadatit, right? Yep. Religious enforcement coercion, right. and coercion. And so, you know, anybody with a keeper who's coming with a message is a missionary. Right. Okay. And the way I like to sometimes describe it, because words are really important in life, uh, I'll do it in Hebrew and we'll try and translate it. So, religious people talk about kiuv as a process for people getting more religious. Mm-hmm. Secular people tend to talk about to be stronger in their beliefs. And the difference is, sociologically, even if it's not meant to be this way, is right. that Kirov is, I'm going to bring you closer to my position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is, from where I stand, I'm going to move. And I'm like, I want to be where you are and let's go off together to discover what our common path is I don't need for you to cross the table and secular people and religious people are don't want to be missionized nobody wants to be missionized right. frankly I understand them I too do not like to be missionized right. and so what we try and do is you know our, one of the transitions we've made over the last ten years is from being educational to be moderators so we don't come with a outcome now we come with a path so we are enabling our participants to figure it out rather than a good educational programmer would saying I want to get to the Israeli flag at the end it's going to look like this you know I'm not predetermining the outcome I'm just empowering the conversation Um, that's a difficult Balance because what you can't become on the flip side is to be paraf, to be neutral. We're not neutral, I believe in things. Geshe believes in things, it's a patriotic Jewish organization. Um, but we believe that if there's Shivim Panim the Torah, with it, if the 70 faces to, to Torah, then there is 70 faces to Zionism and 70 faces to Israeli society. And it's a Jewish value that that variety is the power it's the ability not to be stuck on a single dogma which actually is the thing which protects the future of the Jewish people the fact that no Jews look alike we have Tehmani Jews and Moroccan Jews and Ethiopian Jews and Polish Jews and American Jews and British Jews and Israeli Jews and so on and so forth it's not a race issue from that perspective it's a civilization, it's a people, it's a religion, it's all of those things together. It's actually the fact that it's not just, I'm tied to a flag and Paris. Okay? It's not the tricolor. It's something more complex than that. And it takes time to think about that, to open your mind to that, to understand I can have, I can be faithful to my position inside of that circus of Judaism and still appreciate that uh, uh, within that orchestra, there are other there are other melodies. It's not postmodern in the sense of there's no truth. Right. It's postmodern in the sense of I'm sure I have eighty percent, and I know there are other ways to reach this truth together. And in fact, your twenty percent or my twenty percent and your eighty percent actually together combine to make. I'm not negating the power of. Truth. Right. I'm just taking a modest position, of saying, I'm not a hundred percent sure I have all of it. Right. Because I was going to ask you, like, do you
0: run up against the fact that some religious Jews may say, look, I can do this to a point, but I can't license other things. I can't, I can't now go and say Shabbat is something other than what is constrained by the Jewish law, for example. Absolutely. Right? And and they're never going to say that, and
1: and they shouldn't say that, right? So. Mm-hmm. Do you get pushback in that regard them saying? So, so uh, at a Gesheh level, we obviously deal with that, um, and we get pushback in that sense. And in fact, there is a, an emerging kind of flip to that. So yes, obviously, yeah. um, I can't give up on my religious ideals, it's the, it's the Torah truth, it's what I was given in Mount Sinai, it's not mine to right. compromise on, it's the Shulchan Aruch. So yeah, that's true. Um, I think the best way for for me to answer that often is to be pragmatic and say okay, I accept your position, you represent a percentage of Israeli society, we're going to stay here and they're going to stay here, and now let's figure out how that works. And by the way, I think we want Shabbat to be a central theme for Israeli society. How are you going to do that if 80% of the country does not believe in Shulchan Aruch? Right. It? And by the way, if you ignore it, the eighty percent will do what they were going to do anyway. Sure, they'll go to the they'll go to the, the mall, they'll go to the beach. You know, by by staying within your pure halachic definition of what Shabbat looks like, you're not going to assist anybody else to be closer to that even from your perspective well i think that they would say that look
0: so yes we're going to go out and try to educate you know and again there's the danger of missionizing of course we're going
1: to go out and try to bring people close i i I think israeli society has has its missionaries they have a benefit it's limited there's a great deal of pushback because it's considered by people who are not religious to be patronizing sure um and if you take the responsibility of saying okay i'm a shulchan and i'm going to missionize I say, because day, but I'm saying, let's just analyze, let's be rational for a second and right. say, what's the impact of that? What's actually happening? And right. what, that, what does that mean for the millions of people who are on Shabbat are going to the right. mall? Right. right. My only problem is I don't think that uh, at the end of the day can really really religious Jew at the end of one of these
0: seminars say, you're right, let's strengthen a cultural Shabbat experience, or will they never so, get I, to that I, point?
1: I, let me tell you about a program that, that yeah. we have incubated here. Which is exactly in that sort of dotted line. Yeah. One of our alumni was the uh, deputy minister for education and a member, a, a prominent member of the 2 D uh, party, Avi Wurzman.
0: Okay.
1: Great guy. And a religious guy, a Shulchan okay? Believes in Shabbat, keeps Shabbat. We created a series of programs whose title is Shalom Shabbat. And what we did was, in order to get around the Shulchan Aruch, we do it during the week. Mm. So we brought Shabbat, the ideas of Shabbat, and we're talking about them, and during in midweek. So it's Kabbalah Shabbat on Thursday, <laughs> if you will. All right, so it's, and it's music and piyut and comedy, and it's a, it's a, a combined cultural right. gig Delivered at a community level With proper professional It's not like neighborhood Guitarists It's top line (laughs) Daniel (laughs) Goldman level musicians (laughs) Not quite It's well known brand name Singers and poets and artists and so forth Who are all coming together We built a unique set of programs That brings Shabbat Out of the debate Argument of whether we should have public transport or not have public transport right, right. and bring that to the community. Yeah. And it's for religious people and for secular people and it's open to all and it's attractive to all. Yeah. Right? Nobody's forced it's not closed audiences, it's people deciding to come. And this was a way for us to bring the values of Shabbat in a non-threatening way to everybody without anybody feeling like on the one hand, I need to keep Shabbat, and on the other hand somebody else saying I'm licensing somebody else not to keep Shabbat. Right. Um, and we've actually spun that out. It's now funded by the Education Ministry and it's been taken over by Ortora Stone and if you will it's an exit for us. Right. Um, and that started here. And it's it's a creative non sectoral set of programming that allows everybody to take part and experience and discuss Shabbat without it turning into Shulchanach or not Shulchanach. So that's no longer the axis of right. the argument. Right. Um you know, th- th- there are lots of attempts to do that on Shabbat. Shabbat Israelit, and the, you know, what they call it, uh, the Rabbi Goldstein. Oh, uh, Sh- yeah, Shabbat, of course. Uh, but the Shabbat problem Prophet. with those things are is that what tends to happen is religious people host non religious right. people, and most religious people won't be hosted by non religious sure. people. And then the rel- non religious people say, well, that's just kirov. Okay? And for those who want it, great. But that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for. It's Shabbat is ours, it's not yours. Right. All right, and this is the uh, thing, but it has real practical implications. If rabbis don't get to grips with what a Jewish sovereign country has to do on Shabbat in order to be a Jewish sovereign country, then it will just be secular. That's the default. Right. The default is not how do we run the electric company, which is everybody gets electricity that needs it or wants it, and on the other hand, we minimize the desecration of Shabbat or whatever. Right. Or, you know, if we're going to have, if, we, if there is 80% of one's public transport, you know, how do we do it in a Shabbat-style way? Right. And I don't mean the kind of kosher-style restaurants where it's, it looks kosher, but it's not kosher. It, it's, a, it's a Rubicon, I think, that right. people have to cross. Because with the responsibility of having a sovereign state comes the responsibility of thinking like a sovereign state. Right. We don't have that history of halachic development in the Shulchan Aruch because we didn't, ha- we didn't need it. Not in the Shtetl and not in New York and not in London. We only need it here and it's only been a question 40, 50 years, 70 okay. years. So we don't have like we have with Kashrut and we have with uh, you know, monetary laws and a whole, there's a whole vast array of rich jurisprudence and, and, and halachic uh, development on a, almost everything except when you're running a country.
0: Right.
1: Now, if there is rabbinic thought about that, they are they have a seat at the table. If there's no rabbinic thought about that, they won't have a seat at the table. I'm like, I'd like you to have a seat at the table. And I'm saying that I'm religious, but even if I wasn't religious. Right. And actually, stick my neck out, 70%, 80% of the country, religious or not, are interested in what Judaism has to say about this. Right. But, they don't feel compelled by the obligation of mitzvah. So that can't be, for them, the only defining quality. They're happy to understand what that means, but it cannot be the exclusive definition of how we're going to run the public sphere. And how do you, how do you find that balance? Right. That, is the, that is the redemption that we seek. Right? Yeah. So that is, you know, I don't see the redemption as a guy coming on a white donkey. I see the redemption as how we build a a wondrous society where we can figure these things out. These are exceedingly complicated uh, questions and and issues and it's it's an amazing
0: thing that there are people willing to dive in to to deal with them and especially in your case as a volunteer as a layperson and probably dealing with lots of things like fundraising and (laughs) all the unfun parts of it although it sounds like you get to actually be in the room as well for some of the conversation Um, in any event Gesher uh, is is a magnificent institution
1: trying to do these things tell us where people can learn more about it sure Uh, Um, so uh, Gesher g-e-s-h-e-r gesher.co.il is our uh, main homepage from there you can get to an english home page um there's a sort of broad description of all of our activities uh you can follow me personally uh on facebook daniel goldman you can follow me on twitter we Gesha has its own twitter and facebook also in english and in hebrew uh, it's something which we probably need to invest in a little bit more so it's there chairman yeah. of the board let's go <laughs> yeah, absolutely I'm, I'm certainly pushing that um as with most organizations they like to invest on in doing that's right not shouting i'm like if we don't shout it's like a tree falling in the woods right um, but uh, uh, we do publish uh, in English and in Hebrew uh, obviously we, we also have mailing lists and all the rest of it if you really want to be uh, excited about it follow me and I will guide you through some of these really exciting uh, questions and, and I, I want to sort of maybe finish if we if we're getting Please. towards the end of it yeah the world is coping and dealing with some really big questions the future of Western democracy The position of immigrants, globalization versus rust belts, technology versus loving my neighbor, my friend on Facebook who lives 10,000 miles away, and the neighbor across the street that I never speak to, Europe, countries defining on the the sort of the pendulum between ultra-nationalism and ultra-universalism, and maybe I'm completely crazy, all right? In fact, I think I am. (laughs) But, a lot of these questions are questions that we are dealing with and grappling with here in Israel. The balance between universal values and particular values. The balance between protecting the nation-state of Israel as the the state of the Jewish people and how we treat and deal with minorities and immigrants. Okay? My dream is that we don't lag the world on these issues but we enlighten the world on these issues mm. and we have the ability to do that and we have the people and the thinking and it's Israel and the diaspora and, and it's using those different experiences and skills together we absolutely can be that light unto the nations because all those things are happening here and and the spotlight as you well know Uh, is on us and we can rise to that challenge and and be at the front of it and that's my dream for for Israel and that's why I passionately spend my time here at uh, Gesher.
0: A beautiful dream and and, uh, inspiring passion. Daniel Goldman, thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure, thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's p P-A-T-R-E-O-N a t r e o n.com/jews you should know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.